This is Seriously Social, the podcast where Australia's best social scientists help us understand the social impacts of the COVID-19 crisis. It's brought to you by the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and hosted by Ginger Gorman. G'day and thanks for joining us wherever you may be and whatever you may be doing. You are listening to Seriously Social. This is the podcast where we use the lens of the social sciences to help us consider how COVID-19 is impacting Australian society, our relationships, human connections and societal structures. We get experts to give us new insights and help us think about things in new ways. With me now is Dan Woodman, an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Melbourne and President of both the Australian Sociological Association and the Council of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences. Now, Dan's expertise is in generational issues, and today we'll be chatting about how the pandemic is impacting those people and these relationships. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be speaking with you, Ginger. What's your interest in generations? So with some colleagues at the University of Melbourne, I'm running a project called Life Patterns, which has tracked two cohorts of young Australians through their 20s as they make that transition to adulthood to look at how that transition has changed. But uh, the the two groups we've followed are part of what in the popular discourse is called Gen X and uh, Gen Y or the millennials. So we've had this amazing data set where we've surveyed people every year and also done interviews with a subsample of the group to really look at how that transition to adulthood, but more more broadly, how life in Australia is changing, how the kind of possibilities for the kind of ways you can build an adult life have shifted across those two cohorts. So that's given us some great insights into the way Australia as a whole has changed, but how that might have different effects based on when you're born. Dan, I read an article that you wrote a couple of years ago based on this research project in The Guardian, and you were really delving into how millennials are relying on their parents more, often boomers, financially and for accommodation. And basically, you were indicating that family resources matter much more than they did a generation ago. So looking at that research now in the context of the pandemic, what are you noticing with all these families where young people and boomers are living together? Yeah, so over the last, well, 20 years, and, and really going back before that, the language of generations is often used for, for um, bashing each other over the head with, basically, you know, selfish boomers, narcissistic millennials, these kind of things, that, a language of generation wars. Like I've really noticed that when I started doing this research, the millennials, we, we tended to call them Gen Y before that millennial label really stuck, were copying it all the time in the media. And then over the last few years, maybe as uh, some boomers have been re- retiring or, or they, those uh, jobs in the media have disappeared and, and new, maybe less secure jobs have emerged, that there's a whole cohort of uh, millennial journalists who finally got a chance to say something back the other way. And the boomers have copped it a lot as well. So so in the public discourse, there's this real sense of a generation clash, that there's these two generations, the one is losing out at the 
expense of the other. That is too simple. But then there's other social scientists who say, look, this is just inequality as it's always been. You know, it's it's class, it's other, it's things like that, and this is how it's always been. <laughs> you know, that's how capitalism works. But we made some really, really big changes in how the economy works that, that shaped the life of the millennials, that, that kind of pulled away some of the security or some of the supports for that transition to adulthood. And it didn't throw them back just on their own resources. Really, and, and partly deliberately, it made the family more important as the support that lasts well, well past when, when maybe for the baby boomers you had the opportunity to, to really be independent. So, so on the one hand, we have made changes that, that have affected the life chances of, of new generations, but the way that has worked has actually made certain kinds of intergenerational solidarity, particularly in family groups, even more important than it, it used to be. But what's happening now in the pandemic? Because where you may have had everybody going out to work and everybody going out to do, you know, university or various other activities, now we're not going out, obviously. So everyone's jammed in there together. <laughs> yeah, as, as, a, as a parent of young children, I'm, uh, I'm, very, I'm very viscerally aware of this sense of being jammed in together with everyone. And there's some lovely parts of it, but there, there's also some, some challenges. So one of the ways we've managed to have this asset price boom that we've had around housing in Australia and other things and extend the time people spend on average in education and manage a, a transition to work that maybe takes longer is for young people to stay in the family home for longer than they used to. So that's that's a clear pattern we've seen in our research. Again, on average, there's some, some people do still move out early, although, you know, some people, and it's, it's much more common these days to move out for a while and then... Uh, Go, go home again, either either to save some money or with your tail between your legs in some ways. And there, there's very early evidence. This is not from my own study, but just from reading some of the, the statistics that are coming out now that maybe some young people are starting to move home right now in response to, you know, just to manage the, the day-to-day life of the crisis, but also jobs disappearing or, or, you know, just wanting those supports when they maybe aren't needing to go into university or TAFE face-to-face at the moment. That's right. So I wrote an article for the ABC about the mental health of young people between 18 and 24 and Professor Patrick McGorry, who a lot of people would know, who's a sort of godfather of mental health in Australia, especially for that group. He's very worried about that cohort just because they are in insecure work a lot of the time and they've a lot of these jobs have gone in the pandemic universities TAFEs have been shut so you're getting droves of young people who maybe were exploring a fledgling independence moving home as well so uh, you know I'm wondering what is happening inside households around Australia at the moment (laughs) where you've got all these intergenerational uh, relationships and they're not getting a break from each other. One of the things that has changed that's allowed these intergenerational households to develop and and to, to function and sometimes even thrive is that although in some ways millennials are more dependent on their parents' generation for support than they used to be, culturally things have changed so you can live at home 
again, this is speaking in generalities, but you can live at home as a young adult and get treated as an adult. You know, your, your, your parents won't be saying, you have to follow the rules in my house, you know, no intimate partners ever allowed to, to step foot in this or stay overnight in this house or those kind of things. So one of the ways we did it was that intergenerational households still could live a relatively independent life. One of the really interesting things I've looked at in, in our, our study of this transition to adulthood in Australia has been the way that some of the complexities of the schedules of everyday life, particularly for young people, you know, working those casual jobs that might have night, evening hours, variable hours, mixing work and study with, with a social life is that people's schedules are all over the place. That can actually help in some ways because, you know, you might want to spend some time with your parents, but there's other points in your in your week and month and year where you'll kind of pass like ships in the night. You know, you, you won't be in each other's faces all the time. And um, I think that's one of the, you know, for, for some people it's been lovely to be in each other's faces all the time, but I think there's a lot of people out there who have also found that a, a real challenge. And that sense that you can, you can live with your parents as a young adult and still be independent is, has really disappeared quickly. You know, it's like it's gone, uh, it's completely disappeared quite quickly for the time being. And it'll be interesting to see what happens into the future because this moment we're having now of a global pandemic feels very much like a turning point in history, you know, like the Great Depression or the Great Wars. And these big events do change young people in the years ahead. So I'm wondering what this generation of change makers who are, say, 15 into their mid-20s are future leaders in all kinds of fields, if you want to phrase it that way. What is going to happen to them because of these experiences, Dan? Yes. There's always a a large degree of speculation in all these things. But, you know, I've seen a lot of... uh, articles and and some more academic writings start to come out about how things are going to be totally different after this. And I'm a little bit skeptical of that because I think we've we've seen the capacity for us to return to, you know, our footy games and shaking hands and going to the movies and other things after previous pandemics. And and economically what what people tend to mean when they say this is this is such a big event we can't go back is that we shouldn't go back cuz i think what what we were we had before before this wasn't working very well for everyone so as much as anything it's almost like a political statement and what these events can do is kind of reset the stakes of politics so sometimes you you see takes on generations where they treat a new cohort like they're all of one with all one value set. Like like just as a little bit of an aside, when I teach my students about this, I show them some very influential work on on generations that I, I think is very simplistic that, that kind of maps all the generational cohorts and says, if you're in this group, you like to do this and you like to think like this. And one of the things it says is that millennials and Gen Zs, the, the you know, 18, early 20-somethings now, really learn through uh, kinesthetic means, through movement and dance, basically. And I, I show that to my students in my class and say, well, because of this research, what we're going to do is we're going to dance our way through the rest of the semester. All lectures <laughs> will be dance-based, all assessment will be dance-based, because this is what the research is saying you want. And then I say, actually, I'm joking, you can all sit down after we loosen up. And 
about 10% of the class look really disappointed that they're not going to dance and 90% look really, really relieved. And I think it's the same when I do the same exercise with Gen, Gen Xs or, or, or boomers. What the generational work often does is take small but sometimes significant changes and make them into these generational defining oppositions. Whereas the best work on generations really thinks about how this will just change the stakes or the problems that a cohort has to deal with. And the people in that cohort will do it in more than one way, lots of different ways. This is Seriously Social. I take your point, Dan, completely. However, I have been wondering things myself in terms of whether there will be a generation COVID, if you like, just with my own children. Like I've been wondering things like will they be hesitant to touch other people? Will it be harder for them to make relationships because they're worried about getting sick? Will they want much more secure work and go for, say, jobs in the public service where they've got a lifelong career rather than insecure work as I am currently in? You know, will there be swings towards certain kind of behaviours which are a result of what is happening now? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I've, I have seen the, the term Generation COVID being thrown around already. Uh, in earlier points, I've, I've seen people talk about the, these big events as generationally defining. So the Vietnam War or, or some people talked about September 11 and the War on Terror in these terms. And I think there's a degree of truth to that, but it's almost like there's, there's some generational dimensions to it, but it doesn't override also, I, I guess things about our humanity that seem to have quite a lot of resilience. And what it does is just reshape the way people go about that. So, I, you know, people who are part of that popular cohort called Gen X grew up with their their ideas about intimacy shaped by the HIV pandemic and, and some really confronting ads and other things. And it absolutely shaped their attitudes and views and the way they acted, but it didn't stop a search for intimacy. You know, I think we're going to we're going to find that that kind of need for human touch and connection in various ways will return after this pandemic. But maybe with some uh, new elements added on top, at least for the the immediate future. So, so the way I like to think about this is that, that these events can kind of set the scene for people to to think differently about how they live their life. But for some, that's going to mean thinking differently about how it's possible to return to the things that they value. And I was talking to your colleague, uh, Richard Holden, economist, in one of the podcasts about uh, the economic changes that were going to occur because of COVID-19. And he was talking about a reset or a, a sort of solving of some of the problems that we already had in the economy. So perhaps we are going to see a solving of some of these problems which are already in people's lives in a positive way. In fact, the changes might benefit society and benefit individuals. Yeah, it, there's absolutely the chance of that. It's it's kind of an opportunity, but the the way it often works out is it's kind of a reset or or. It's sh- 
a change in the, the kind of arguments we have, but there's still usually a left and right. You know, the, the people talk about the baby boomer generation and that counterculture around the Vietnam War in the late 60s and other things as, as generationally defining, and it was, but it was also the birth of not just a new left, it was like a new right that also really had its, um, its beginnings at that time and, and in some ways has shaped politics just as much as, as that new left. And I think we will probably see that again. But but Richard is absolutely right. This is time for, for a reset. But it also might mean that the people have to, yeah, have to rethink or go about getting the things they want from work in a different way. I, I have a, a recent journal article that came out at the end of last week that looked at attitudes towards job security in the two cohorts in my study. So this group that, that finished school in the early 1990s, comparing them to a group that finished um, high school in the mid-2000s. And it was very funny and, and somewhat against the generational stereotype types that both of the cohorts, both in their early 20s and even when they were 30, really put job security and a job that gave security is the most important thing. So that hasn't changed. But what really changed was the two cohorts, when they were young and even when they got to 30, thought about job security in a very different way. It was about a set of skills that their work might give them that gave them security to find other jobs and have uh, uh, opportunities for, for the cohort who finished in 2006, which was quite different to the group who finished in the early 1990s. So sometimes what these generations are about is not a radically opposite view on what life should be like, but a different understanding based on the structures they face about how you go about doing that. It's really interesting and I think what you're, I'm hearing you say is that we need to look at this in all its complexity and not try to boil things down in a black and white way because it doesn't really serve us. No, exactly. That's right. So so my view is generational or, or cohort uh, factors really do play an important role in shaping our lives and our opportunities. But some of the generational talk really gets into black and white, where it's almost like generations is a sociological factor a play in the world more than there is a group that you can call the millennials who will think of themselves as the millennials and all act as millennials or, or Gen Zers or, or baby boomers. Our lives, are, our lives are shaped by generations, but also by all those other factors that social scientists look at. And, and really some of the most interesting questions are about how all those factors intersect. So, so I, I sometimes push back against colleagues who talk about generational factors as somehow opposed to, to thinking about class or if you're talking about generations and you're saying class doesn't matter or, or gender or other things. Whereas I, I think we need to look at the way these, maybe you'll call them long-standing divisions, take particular shape at particular times in our, our history. And they do change the way that, that our class, gender, you know, our, our ethnic background and these things shape our life chances. Dan, one of the things that I was thinking about being a mother of you know, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old was our generation of parents and whether we actually have the skills to bring these kids up because none of us have ever lived through, firstly, a global climate emergency and secondly, a global pandemic. And those two factors, frankly, scare the bejesus out, out of me because those are not skills my parents gave to me that I can give to my kids. I don't know what those are. 
Yeah, that's it. I I can't remember getting a you know a, a good education in pandemic response or climate change emergency when I was in school. It's really interesting because some of the the really foundational work in the area that's called the sociology of generations came from some from scholars writing in the aftermath of the First World War, and they were talking about what it meant for 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 the cohorts most caught up in the fighting, you know, young adults, and how they will build adult lives that would have to look different in certain ways. And even if they did want to return to before, that that would take a lot of work and that would have to look new in certain ways. So so that kind of idea of, of a big change that, that means things have to be different or are different was the foundation of this work. But the, the key scholar was a fellow called um, Karl Mannheim, a Hungarian-German sociologist. And his real interest, if you read his work on generations, is to set that scene and then ask about how intergenerational relationships of education are possible and and he was saying yeah it's it's like how do you educate when you're really living in two different generational worlds in that sense and his answer was that and you know I think this was ahead of its time for the early 20th century is that education can't just be didactic really the teacher has to be learning from the student as well and and it's kind of a, a an attitude, a type of intelligence, you know, you know, you could almost call it like generational intelligence. It's a, aware of the way the world has changed and maybe shaped mindsets that you're you're learning from each other across the generations, but also trying to recognize the way that being part of particular cohorts and growing up at particular times does shape your life and your attitudes and and that's what we need to kind of uh, communicate across and work across. Is that also what we might call resilience now? You're not just teaching children, you're learning from them, but you're giving them a skill set which will enable them to deal with change into the future, although you yourself may not know what that change looks like. You don't want to romanticise or or anything, the, the horrible experiences people have gone through in their life, but some some of the really exceptional foundational work in in life course analysis of the effects of birth cohorts looked at the Great Depression. And the the children and young people of that time really did, you know, in some ways the story that came out of it was one of suffering but then of resilience and and, and bouncing back. In some ways it was harder for the the adults and and young adults who who had children at that time and and then that unfolded over the life course. But there, there is some ways that that these experiences are a chance for people to build attitudes and mindsets and ways of thinking about the world that might give some individual resilience, but maybe more importantly, allow us to to have a new kind of social resilience or solidarity, which is a new opportunity to to connect across some of these generational differences and other differences, not to not to obscure them at all, but to take them seriously and ask, how do we build societies that are going to work for all of us in, in these conditions that we're going to face? Dan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks. This episode of the Seriously Social podcast was brought to you by the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and hosted by Ginger Gorman. For episode notes and transcripts, visit socialsciences.org.au slash podcasts.